Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about Hooked, When You Love an Addict. That is the name of a new book that has just come out by Peggy Watson in regard to her experience um, with her husband, Lonnie Watson, who um, became addicted to cocaine. And... um, I'm sure that many of you can relate, um, perhaps a husband, a wife, um, a, a child, uh, a lot of the issues are the same because, um, because you know, there are some, well, of course, any, when anyone is an addict in the family, it disrupts the whole family. And you love the person, and sometimes loving the person gets... Um, gets mixed up with um, actually uh, helping the person, encouraging the person unconsciously to continue their addiction. So, and then, of course, there's the question of uh, tough love, which, by the way, I'm not sure what Peggy and Lonnie think about that, but I am totally against that. There have been more deaths, more suicides, more uh, disasters from family members listening to... uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know who started that concept, but it is a very horrible one um, to uh, just uh, give tough love and basically abandon the person. Because how could any good come from that? Um, okay. Well, that's my little two cents. <laughs> why don't we Why don't we talk to you, um, Peggy and Lonnie, and hear about your story since you are the ones who lived through this? So, welcome to the show. First of all. Uh, I want to talk first with Lonnie. So, tell us about yourself before before this addiction began. Who were you? Uh, well, I was an athlete. Uh, I lived in Atlanta. I uh, lived there for, I guess, probably about eight to ten years at that time. I went to high, finished high school there, or went to high school there in East Point, Atlanta, at Russell. Um, but my first experience, really, uh, I, was, I was working for Bally, uh, who owns um, Six Flags over Georgia and several of the Six Flags uh, amusement centers and parks. Um, had two kids at that time, and life was pretty, pretty normal, I guess. But and how old were you? How old were you? At that time, I would have been about 25. Uh-huh. Um, so you had a family pretty so you had a family pretty early. So you already had two kids. You had this uh, pretty big job, I take it. Um you were with promotions and and you were making a nice salary? Well, I was I was working actually as an understudy, so you know the money wasn't super great, but I also working a second job learning uh with my brother in law learning how to do carpentry, trim work, you know. Um, and was you know, was making a pretty good living, and, and things were pretty normal. Um, yeah. Went to a, went to a party. Of course, I was I, for me. I never drank a beer. I had never 
taken a pill of any kind, no drug of any kind. Uh, always just didn't care about it, didn't need it. But I guess under a little pressure uh, to try a little of this, you know, you'll be able to work more. You know, you work two jobs. It's so happy you work more. You can go longer. And it seemed like a good idea. Uh, but we know now that it was not a good idea at all. And I was introduced to cocaine. Um, it's like any other addictive spirit or call it a drug or a habit or whatever. Uh, you know, I have a friend who lost everything he owned buying 50 cent scratch off tickets. And he had two businesses, mm. and it's just, it just keeps on eating away at you. Enough is never enough. Uh, it's more uh-huh. and more and more. And it, then it leads to other troubles and uh, family issues. And um, in the wrong places, it can lead to legal issues. Um, but it finally led to a divorce. Um, so then... I guess that would have been probably around 80, 85, 87. Um, so, I was introduced to crack cocaine. So you, you, wait, one second. So in, um, in 84, what you're talking about, so you said you got divorced, so that was to a different woman than Peggy? Yes, yes. Oh, so you were married the first, you were married I was married and wife. having three children for my first wife, yes. Uh huh, and the wonderful and when you started, uh huh, and what kinds of problems did that lead to in your first marriage? Well, she was again, like I said, she was a wonderful woman, and still is. Uh, we even go have Thanksgiving dinner with her every other year, almost. But it mm-hmm. it just put all the burden of everything on her, and and. I'll never know, I guess, maybe the damage that I've done to her and Peggy both by by having to put them through the things that, that I know now that I did. Um, but you just don't care. You're just not really, it's, nothing's relevant to you. The uh, only thing you want to do is what you want to do and your next hit. And you hang mm-hmm. out with people who, who do that and you just walk away pretty much from everything that matters. Uh-huh. And when I was introduced so to crack that, cocaine, it was 10 by 100 uh-huh. times as bad. I've never mm-hmm. saw anything like it. Uh, it it's just unbelievable how addicting it is. I've I, I read that it's seven times more addicting than heroin. And we've heard all the stories of how bad heroin is, and we know it's true. But I think crack cocaine had to be one of the greatest things as far as ruining families in this country has ever happened because enough is never enough. You'll, you'll take your mother's refrigerator and sell it. You'll take your wife's last dollar out of her purse when she's not looking and sell it. I praise God I, I, I never was a thief, but I really was because I stole from my family by, by blowing money like I did. I was, yes. I, I was, so, I was so ashamed that you know it, it, it didn't matter, but I look back now and I wonder where, where was, and it's not to blame anyone, uh, I, I take all the, I take the weight of it because it was me that made the decisions. But I look back now and wonder where were the people, instead of pointing the finger and telling me how you know better, 
You shouldn't be doing this. You was raised better. Um, you, you should be ashamed of this. You're, if I was your family, I would disown you. You hear all that, but you never hear anybody say, hey, let, let's talk, man. There, there's a better way. I don't know that I would listen, but when you want to get away from something, addiction is not pretty. It's not pretty for the person addicted, and people think that they, I think sometimes that they, 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 could, they could do better. Well, maybe they can at certain points, but addiction is not selective. It, you know, it, it, it can hit any family, anybody, and whether it's food, um, you know, uh, gambling, you can go on and on. Anything that you get addicted to, playing games, uh, Internet, you know, whatever. Um, but it, the drug industry just, it, it drains everything, and it gets a, and so, so quietly, it gets a hold of it so quietly that uh, no one notices and then it, it just keeps pulling. There's more and more until there's nothing left, and then it wants to kill you. It, it, that really is the ultimate goal, I believe. Uh, of course, I, I believe in my heart that it's all spiritual, that it's good and evil. Um, and evil is never happy with just having you get your lights turned off then lose your house and lose your car and your job. Uh, it wants your life, too. And mm-hmm. that's really for... I guess that I, it, I guess for lack of a better word, it came to my senses, or my eyes were opened, or whatever. Um, I did try to commit suicide because I was ashamed, and I didn't want my family to have to deal with me anymore. Put up with me. I didn't want to keep living like I was living, and I had tried everything I knew to not do it. I literally would wake up going down the highway in my truck to the dealer to get more cocaine and didn't realize I was even out of the bed. And it was, it was just then unbelievable. You, that, then, then, wait, wait, wait. You, then you realized that you were what? I would, I would be in my truck going down the highway to, to the dealer to find me another hit. And yes. I, I actually thought I was in bed to sleep. I would just, like, sleepwalking, get up and I go see. leave. I see. And uh-huh. It is, it's, it's, unbelievable that I'm still here. Um, I was told about four years ago I had a year and a half to live because of the condition of my heart, uh, the way I've treated it, but um, they will make you on a heart transplant this, but I, I refuse. I, I, I still work almost every day. I still coach and help kids. I play, play ball, uh, and I'm very active. But until you get to that point or until somebody touches you in some way to help you know that they understand it's real. Addicts don't listen. They, they, they have a, a, a system they have in their head to not hear anything. It's, you know, they don't agree with you on anything, but they'll not follow through. Uh-huh. And so I got to the point that I didn't really know what else to do. I, I wanted to get out of the life that I was living. I, I knew better. Yeah, I knew better. I was I ashamed? Yeah, I was ashamed. Could I quit? No, I couldn't. Because I hated myself for it. I, you swear over and over, you'll not do it again. You know, you, you talk to your loved ones or whatever, and you promise anything. 
but the very first time that you have the opportunity, 99 times out of 100, you will go back. And it starts the process all over again, all the drama, the family, whatever, um, and the anger and issues from legal to family to children. It's, it's maddening, and it's even more maddening to me. Um, I've been clean uh, right at about 22 years. Um, I've worked with homeless and drug addicts and people in jails, outside of jails, under bridges. Uh, still even do as far as you know, we, we have people who don't have any lights, people who don't have any food, uh, people who got nowhere to go. Um, and we, we try to work and handle all that in, in some way or another, with help from others, of course. Um, but even now, it's, it's almost like that people don't want any part of They'd rather throw money at somebody, give them $10 to go away or $5, like, go, go get you a meal, rather than take some time and, and talk with them and just spend time with them. Mm-hmm. To let them know that there's somebody who cares because it just takes one person. It takes one person to let somebody know that, hey, I understand. And you can't go talk to a drug addict unless you have been there because they see right uh-huh. there. What's, what's even more yes. upsetting is that there are, there are a lot of places who have something for the addict. You can find help for the addict just about anywhere you want to go, uh, and that's a good thing. But you would cut off half of that problem if you would, if somebody would help the loved ones of the addict. Because the, again, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the loved ones are the ones who's enabling them to keep participating, if you will. You know, the, the, I'm going to give you this this last time. Now you better spend this right. Now you better go get done with what I tell you to do with it. And they hand them a hundred-dollar bill. I, I saw it, and I, and I was mm-hmm. like wringing my hands. Oh no, you can't hand them a hundred dollars. <laughs> Because you won't see it again. Well, they said they need it. Yeah, I know they need it. If they did, you should go buy it for them and keep the receipts. Because they'll take it Mm -hmm. back in and trade it for cash. Um, Yeah. And there there are some some folks out there I know who are are serious and doing good work. But I I think there's so much more we can do to reach, for instance, we've uh, helped even to establish a church uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Uh, and we've worked with two other churches, three other churches since that time. But there's, there is so much more that pastors could be doing, but, and, and the leaders are the ministers, or the youth pastors, or the counselors, because unfortunately, the biggest part of the people in our churches who are in these positions have never been addicted. Mm. They don't uh-huh. understand. And, and for them to try then to deal or minister to some some of their congregation and telling them everything is going to be all right, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to uh-huh. be all right because they're going to have to deal with that addict again probably when they get home, who's probably sitting there waiting for them to get home maybe from service with a good story. 
and they're yeah. being all churchy and wanting to do good today and open, well, new beginnings and forgive and forget and 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 the addict knows that and just as well as the person who is at the church knows it. But they yes, need yes. some real legitimate help and understanding from people who have been there and wore the T-shirt. Uh, because if we can help the people who the addict is left in their wake, if you will, and, and we do, it's like a tornado came through. When you when you stop and look back over the last 20 years or the last five years of, of what an addict, the carnage it has caused in the family and the misery, the craziness, then it's... Uh, it's maddening. It is. Yes. But yes. I, I, there's been several people that that we've known, and my wife has even did a class at locally here in town. I was on the Seven Hundred Club, even to tell a little bit of the story. Um, but oh, okay, well, well, Lonnie, we um, I don't know if you heard the music, but we need to take I a did. break right now. Okay. And um, we will come back. So my uh, guests you, today Jennifer. are Peggy, Peggy, and Lonnie Watson. We're talking about the book, When You Love an Addict, which is the name of the new book that Peggy has just written based upon her experience with Lonnie. And when we come back, we'll hear more of their story and more about what you can do if you are in love with or have a family member who is also an addict. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. 
Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with Peggy and Lonnie Watson. Uh, Their book is called Hooked, When You Love an Addict. And we've just been hearing from Lonnie, um, really in a very personal and and, uh, forthright manner about how devastating um, his addiction to cocaine and then crack cocaine became um, and now, you know, Peggy, in the meantime, um, I want to put this in context. So actually, he, this was right after high school. Let me just correct that. He was around, um, he wasn't, so then he was, what was, like 18 or 19, I guess? Yeah, 18. Something like 19, that. 18, I think, yeah. Okay. Okay. So he was around 18 when he got uh, addicted, when he began, started coke, and, and that's, and it's so quick and easy to get addicted to. And um, why don't you start with that, Peggy, that um, you, you started, he left out some important uh, information about <laughs> what his life was like at that time. I mean, I think, uh, Lana, you were kind of being a little uh, too humble. Um, Peggy, tell us about who he was when, <laughs> when he began this addiction. Of course, I didn't meet him until he was 38, but I do know that he was in Sports Illustrated coming out of high school, one of the top basketball players, I guess probably the top basketball player in his school. Um, he was in the newspaper a lot with you know a lot of newspaper clippings, high scoring, all those type of things. And he had 100, 150 scholarships that he could have picked from going on to college. But, huh. um, you know... At some point, he, whether he met some people or he was at the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong mood, whatever the case was, he tried um, cocaine. I, I think they called it free basic back then, so I think that's more what we even call crack now. Um, he could correct me on what he tried, I'm sure, but um, regardless, he tried drugs. And he wasn't maybe raised in a family that was necessarily the most... Um, supportive for saying, oh, no, you need to go on to school. They were more saying things like, well, you know, you just need to to do what your dad's always done and, and that sort of thing. So there wasn't a lot of encouragement maybe to go on and pick the schools. And just kind of a young, you know, a young kid. He doesn't know. He doesn't realize maybe what all those choices really mean for him. And he tried crack or tried cocaine. And from that point forward, it had him. He might not have known it that first night he had it. But it had him for over 20 years. And, of course, when you can't get that drug, you try other drugs. So, you know, you end up using lots of different things over the years. Um, Crack was his mistress. Crack was his love. Crack was what um, he ran to above all else. So I met him well after he had divorced. Him and his first wife had divorced. I met him when he was 38 years old. I was 26. I was divorced myself, just got divorced. And I asked him if he used to use drugs. You know, we, we chatted as we're dating, and we were long-distance dating for a little while, traveling back and forth to see each other, and um, met him in a mall, of all places. But, yeah. you know, you chat. You, you try to get to know each other when you're dating. And he said he used to use drugs, and I didn't follow that up with, does used to use drugs mean like yesterday? <laughs> I, I, it didn't cross my mind. I had never used a drug in my life. I was a straight-A honor student. I had no clue of what drug world was. 
My parents didn't drink. My parents didn't smoke. I didn't know anybody that did drugs ever in my life. So total naive. And when he said he used to use drugs, all I thought he meant by that was years ago. And I'm thinking he smoked pot once or twice. I didn't really imagine how entangled and how long that addiction had been for him. And I didn't even comprehend that he was an addict, just that he used to use. Uh Uh, I didn't equate those. So then um, uh, we lived together. We dated long distance for probably six months. We lived together for about a year, and then we got married. And it was about six months into our marriage when he started disappearing. We didn't have cell phones back then. This was, you know, mid to late 90s. We, he and I didn't, at least didn't have cell phones. I think they existed for some people, but we didn't have them. So when he'd say the car broke down and he was running late, or when he'd say he was out with the boys and drank too much and he didn't think he ought to drive, or he was visiting his daughter who was, had a little baby at the time, his first little granddaughter, you know, I, I didn't think all that much about him. It wasn't constant. It wasn't every night. But over the next year, it got to where it was, you know, once a month to once every couple of weeks to every week to finally, it's like, okay, what's going on? These stories are getting uh-huh. old. <laughs> and yeah. I just figured he was having an affair. I still didn't know it was drugs. Huh. He was huh. hiding it. When people think someone can't hide it, the, the, the wife had to know, the husband had to know, the, the parents had to know. That is not the case. Addicts in general are so good at their BS, at their stories, and they know their targets. They know their wife, their husband, their parents. They know them so well to say just what they want to hear to keep it going. And I I didn't know for quite a while until finally he was staying gone three or four nights in a row. He was traveling at the time with his brother as well. They had a um, they had a business where they traveled. And he did it a lot when they traveled, which I didn't know. And it was called Bases Loaded Promotions. And they hung out with a lot of baseball stars and other sports figures, um, not every week, but pretty often. They were hanging out in that kind of high-level world. I'm not saying that they were all doing drugs. I don't know what, what sports people do or didn't, but I just know my husband and his brother, they were. And um, so when he'd come home, you know, He'd be home a day or two, and then he'd disappear. And again, the stories always had to, you know, go fix this, go check on that. It's for the business. It's for my daughter. It's, you know, for something worthwhile. But then when he finally was staying gone so many nights in a row, then I was like, who is she? He came home one day to find me packing, packing the one car that we had. We only had one junker car at the time. He was saying how the business wasn't doing good, hadn't been doing good for months. And I had no paychecks to follow up on any of that. I just believed him and his brother that the business wasn't doing all that good anymore, that they're probably going to have to sell Mm -hmm. it and have to find something else to do. And meanwhile, they're making hand over fist, hand over fist. They were making thousands of dollars a weekend. And, um, I, we had this one little junkie car. Well, I was packing it to leave when he came home one day, he had been gone, I think five days that time. Hadn't heard from him. I'd called around like I always did thinking something was wrong, maybe he'd wrecked or, you know, whatever. And uh, 
could catch where he had been, or they lied and said that he wasn't there, as the case often was, really. And uh, finally, after about five days, he comes home and he finds me packing, and he's like, he walks in like he's been gone for an hour, <laughs> and yeah. looks at me like, what's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, what's wrong with me? Where have you been? I could have been raped laying on this floor, and you wouldn't have known. You've been gone for days. And I said, who is she? He said, what do you mean, who is she? Okay, what's going on? Because no husband stays gone for days at a time like this. Who is she? You must be having an affair. And almost angry, almost... um, I'm not even sure how to describe the emotions at the time for either one of us. Very raw. But he said, I don't know how else to tell you, but I'm addicted to crack cocaine. I don't know what you want to hear. I was like, oh, okay, whoa. I, didn't, I was in shock. I was absolutely in shock. We say, it's an addi- we say addiction is a disease. If it were a disease, if it were, if it were cancer, would I leave him? No. If it was some other disease, would I leave him? No. So should I leave him at this point? I mean, I'm saying this in honest question like I did at the time. Do I leave him? Do I not leave him? Is there help for this? Is there hope for this? Is there a cure for this? And as we talked the rest of the day, off and on, do we still love each other? Yes. Have we been faithful to each other? Yes. Do you want to quit? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. Well, my mind, as a straight-A student, well, there, we're almost fixed. Great. It's going to be easy now. Just stop using. Simple. (laughs) I had no idea what I was about to face. The next five Uh to seven years... Of that roller coaster ride with the, I believe, honesty that he wanted to quit, partly honesty, partly he didn't want to quit. He just wanted the mess to stop. But I want to keep using because, you know, I really like it. But I just don't want the mess anymore. It's like you want Mm -hmm. to keep doing what you're doing, but you want everything to change at the same time. And I went looking for help. And I would find people that would pat me on the back. Hey, I'll pray with you. That's great. I'm not knocking prayer. I love prayer. I would find people who would say, let me help you find a rehab for him. We need to get him into rehab. Oh, gee, like yeah. that never crossed my mind. He's six foot seven. You, you make him go. <laughs> he is. He's six foot seven. Huh. Um, I, I was going to ask Go ahead. I was going to ask you that, actually. Um, both of you, like, why? I mean, that would have been the first thought to go into rehab. Why didn't that happen? Because he really wasn't 100% in, uh, agreeing that he wanted to quit? I mean, only part of him wanted to quit? I think that's a big reason. I think that's why a lot of people don't want to go into rehab, because rehab expects actual change. And I don't want to change anything. I just want everything to change. But I don't want to change Mm -hmm. anything. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I like it just fine. And for many people, and Lonnie mentioned this a while ago about the enablers. We don't mean to be enablers. I would never have said I was an enabler. I was doing everything in my mind, everything I could research, everyone I could ask to get him to stop. How in the world am I enabling but looking back, and it's, it's also in, in our book that you've mentioned, Hooked When You Love an Addict, 
it's in there, all the ways that you can enable. And yeah. we enable them um, in so many ways that it's, nothing's broken for them. Fix what? I come and go when I please. There's fresh hot food when I come in the house. There's a fridge full of food. The electricity's on. The cars are running. Fix what? There's nothing broken in the addict's mind. We think they've hit rock bottom. No, they've hit some soft, cushy place to lay up and do what they want. (laughs) Nothing rocky down there. It's rocky for us because we're the ones running around trying to lie to the employer so they don't lose their job, trying to keep the bills paid, trying to keep the cars running, trying to fix everything. Meanwhile, we're enabling all the way right behind them, kissing their little noggin to make sure everything's okay for them, making sure their probation person's happy, making sure their fines are paid, getting them out of jail, getting them out of the messes they're in. And we are so part of the mess, but the good news is we are equally part of a solution. Not, we can't cure all addiction. I'm not saying that. That's, that's up to each addict to decide whether they really are going to quit or not. But there are things we can do to give ourselves sanity. And to be honest, a lot of times when we come to that place of sanity, it draws them back. It draws them out of their addiction. It helps them find that place where they say, you know what, I do want to quit because I do see a better way. So, okay, so wait. Not as, so not in as all long these as we're enabling. Years, okay, but in all these years that you were just describing... Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever get him to go anywhere, either a rehab place or even just a psychiatrist, some kind of place to get professional help? I wouldn't say any place to get professional help. I did take him, or I shouldn't say I, take, I took him. I left him that time that he, I, that he came home and found me packing. Um, I didn't leave right then, but within a few months I had found a place to go and I had left. And at the same time... There was a church. Neither one of us were in church at the time. And I found this church that had a uh, 12-step program, but they did it kind of loosely. They followed the 12 steps, but then they actually opened up the Bible and would read the Bible and talk about the higher power being Jesus Christ. Well, I grew up in church, but had gotten away from it. Lonnie, um, his dad was a preacher. He had gotten away from church as well. And... um, when I found this little program, I really liked it because the guy leading it was a cleaned-up ex-addict, and many of the men, mm-hmm. and I think there was a couple women in there as well, all were ex-addicts, every, every last one of them. And it wasn't a place where any court made anybody go, so nobody was there except of their free will, which means a lot. <laughs> that mm-hmm. means a lot in that mm-hmm. world. They're there of their free will. When I found that, I told him, I said, I'm not looking for divorce. I'm not really wanting to divorce you, but I'm not living like this anymore. I'm just not. I never will again. And if you want to save our marriage, you will come to this meeting. And I'm going to be there, Uh too. And I'll know if you really show up, not just physically, but if you emotionally show up, I'll know. Because I, over the years of the roller coaster, I no longer was naive anymore. My eyes were really open on what all I could see through him very, I, I bet he got some things over on me, but he didn't get nearly what he used to get over on me. So I told him, I said, I'll know if you're really there or not. And any week you come, 
then we can date and see each other that week. Any week you don't come, don't bother calling me. You'll get another chance next week. They have a meeting once a week. And he did try it one time. He didn't show up. And he called me, and I didn't answer the phone. And it rang enough times, I finally answered it and said, I'll see you Sunday. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. That was very That was was a turning point for us. Uh Well, I started taking charge of me. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we do need to take another break, um, but that's, okay. that's really a, a very, um, you know, obviously it works because uh, you're, both of you love each other strongly enough that that's why it works. Um, you know, that was the important component to it. Well, okay, we need to take a break. Uh, again, my guests are Peggy and Lonnie Watson. The book is called Hooked When You Love an Addict. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get back right away to my guests, Peggy and Lonnie Watson, and the book, Hooked hooked when you love an addict. You know, I'm kind of, um, as a psychiatrist, I'm so interested in what happens in one's childhood because that is what uh, affects the rest of, determines actually the rest of your life unless, unless you get in help in the, you know, go into therapy somewhere in the middle or something else happens to address the issues uh, from childhood. So I'm still kind of stuck on this uh, intriguing point that, Lonnie, you became addicted to Coke 
right after high school, right when you had these opportunities, these scholarships, the athletic scholarships in basketball and golf and also possibly baseball, to go to college on these scholarships. And that, lo and behold, that's when you get addicted. Now, that, those kinds of things do not happen by coincidence. There had to have been something unconsciously in you that was afraid maybe that, you know, 150 scholarships, these people are, are expecting you to be greater than you are. I mean, maybe in your head you thought that, oh, my God, I can't live up to that. Um, and, and basically you sabotage yourself. What do you think about I'm sure you've had lots of time to think about that over the years and, um, and time to let that fuel your continued use because it must have been so disappointing. Every time you came up for air, you would think, oh, my God, I just threw my life away. I, you know, I might as well, like it's something that you would want to escape from thinking about and go back to using because when you hit reality again and thought about what you had just lost with all these scholarships, that must have been very painful. That that was right at a time that, of course, when you're in high school, for you to visit colleges, your parents have to sign if you're underage. And, of course, I was. I was 17 mm-hmm. then. Uh, and my yes. dad refused to sign for me to go visit any colleges. And oh, wow. Why is Really, why basketball is that? was all I lived for. Wow. Well, why is that? What happened? Why did he refuse he, to he, sign? He was, he just didn't, he thought it was evil, you know, that, and that I shouldn't be trying to get above my raisin or whatever. I, it was very backwards, my, very country uh, We moved there from up in the Tennessee, Kentucky area, uh, I love the country. I'm back up in that country now. Uh, but he just, he did, that was his way of controlling me. I was beaten pretty regular. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on the 700 Club. Um, almost daily, uh, for sure, every couple of days, I got a beating for something, didn't matter. And it was his way of controlling me. He, whatever I did was never enough. If I scored 30 points, well, you could, you could score 35. Uh, you know, it didn't matter. And I don't know if it was, I know he was the youngest of 10 children. And I've talked to a lot of the family over the years. And my Aunt Gladys, who's gone now, told me one time, she said, Honey, he, that's all he knows. That's all he ever knew because he was beat his whole life, mm. being the youngest child. And I was the youngest child, me and my brother. But I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but that, that's how he lived. That was how he controlled mm. And looking back wow. on it, I think that was it. Yeah, he really yes, wanted just didn't have any support behind him for going on to college. Uh-huh. Wow. And in a way, so some of that, so some of that anger and disappointment and all that, of course, from the anger at your father and, and the disappointment and everything um, contributed, of course, and, and not to mention the beatings before then, um, made made the drugs seem uh, uh, attractive in order to escape all of the, the it was knowledge, an escape, all of that absolutely. awareness. You went? Would you say it was an escape? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I didn't want to deal with reality. Yeah. I, I, yes. Basketball really was my whole life. I've even been coached in the last years, coached uh, the young kids in the JC leagues and stuff. Still love basketball. 
and I know it. I understand it. I was a good player. Um, but it, it took away pretty much everything I had worked for every day. That's how I escaped. Even when I was in school, I would play ball, go to gym and play ball, play ball, just not to go home. You know, I'd go from one uh-huh. gym when it closed. I'd go to the other gym, so I had to go home. Uh-huh. And I'd get in the morning, go to and do it again. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And at six foot seven, was it? Uh, no wonder. <laughs> I mean, that must have been must have been a very good player. Plus, your height didn't hurt. Um, well, I'm sorry to hear all of that. It's you know that's so important though for my listeners to realize. Uh, besides what we're talking about in regard to drugs, well, I mean, this is an example of one thing that that turns kids to drugs. Um, and, and parents have such a determinative role in what actually happens to their kids when they go out into the world. Um, now, now I'll ask Peggy a hard question. Um, okay. You know, we, we were talking about enablers before. Um, when, a, when a husband and wife or a, a, a man and a woman are in a relationship and um, the woman or the, either one of them it becomes an enabler, um, it is most often because they are, again, consciously or unconsciously afraid that if their uh, spouse or partner wasn't still hooked on whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, um, that maybe they would leave them. They would realize that they would, were better than the, the other person, you know, or this is what the 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 enabling person thinks it's not necessarily true, but they're afraid that the um, addict will, will think, oh, well, um, you know, now that I've given up my addiction, I've, I'm recovering, um, I, can, I can go out and find somebody who isn't going to accept me, you know, uh, as an addict. I can find somebody better. What, how much, in what way did that play into your relationship with Lonnie? That, I mean, that may be for some. I, I don't know that that was really for me. Um, there was embarrassment, and embarrassment when, when I found out he was an addict. Enabling started with me really more as a cover-up, cover-up for myself, cover-up for others. Um, many people don't want the world to know what's really going on in their household. Um, we walk out the door with our painted faces and everything's in place and we go to work, we go to the store, we say everything is fine. How are you today? Oh, I'm great, I'm fine. Or uh, same old, same old, you know, how it is. But we don't really want to show very often the truth, the junk that's really going on um, in the house. I, I say in the book at one point, it's like having a tornado come through and you clean everything up on the outside, the outside of the house gets mm-hmm. fixed, and everybody driving by just thinks all is well when inside you've got something destroyed going on, and you don't know how, you don't know how to get out of it, and then, so you stay embarrassed, so you, you keep fixing, um, and I, I don't know, I think part of us with enabling too, um, part of it we think that's what love is. Love is making sure that other person is okay, making sure that other person has what they need. So there's a, a falsity there where we just think, well, if I just, if I just give him this money this time, if I just lie to his boss so he keeps his job, then, you know, things will settle down. He'll be okay or she or, who, you know, whoever it is. 
um, and we lie to ourselves because, again, I've mentioned I was a 4.0 student. How in the world did I end up with a crack addict? Mm. What? I mean, people would think I'm stupid, and I don't want anybody mm-hmm. to think I'm stupid because I'm not stupid. So well, I better hide all of answer. this. And Lonnie was highly functioning. It wasn't always that he didn't have any money. For a long time, the plenty of money he made, plenty came home too. So, again, that's how he hid it a lot because I didn't see any money missing. But um, he was highly functioning. You know, we think about that. Sometimes we assume addicts live under the bridge, and that's where you'll find them is under a bridge, you know, as an expression. But they're not. There's, there's doctors. There's lawyers. There's judges. There's um, people flipping burgers at McDonald's. There's all kinds of addicts all across the board. There's rich. There's poor. There's white. There's black. There's Hispanic. There, it, addiction doesn't, like Lonnie said earlier, addiction doesn't care who it hits. It'll right. hit any and house so, it can get its foot in. Yes. And so, Lonnie, you are how many years sober now? It's been right at 22. 22 years. And, so, I, and I would say closer to 20, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe, maybe, well, you're right, because after, that, after a year, I, I, I have let down after about a year, so that's right, about 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about 20. Well, 2022, it, it's... <laughs> you're... you're it's a miracle of God um, in any count. <laughs> uh, yes, and and um, and you are a role model for the um, people that you coach and so on, um, and for the people that you help under the bridge and all of that. So that this is a wonderful story and also uh, a very a very educational story. I mean, a very a story that that teaches by your example, both of you. So let me remind people of, again of the name of the book. It's called Hooked When You Love an Addict. So thank you both so much for sharing your story. Um, and, and, again, you're both to be admired for having struggled and worked through it all. And, of course, as I was saying earlier, your love was really the key to all of this. So thank yeah. you again. And, thank well, you, thank you thank so much you for having us on. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 